Hello and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So, pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 98 and I get to interview the incredible Kat and Sarah of Sleep Mums. Now, what I love about the conversation that we had is that actually the idea was that we were going to talk about routines, to routine or not to routine, but it was just such an easy conversation. We went all over the place. We talked about sleep, we talked about routines. And what is so incredible about Kat and Sarah is that they're both experts in their field. Kat QB is a BBC broadcaster, Sarah Carpenter is a sleep expert, but they're also mums and they're vulnerable, honest mums about the challenges of parenting, uh, the challenges of whether we routine or we don't routine, about sleep, about the characteristics that we bring into our journey as parents. And so I just, it was such a lovely conversation and I think there's some really helpful insights, even for me with older children and the work that I do with families, I got so much out of it. So I really hope that you enjoy this podcast. Now, as ever, if you enjoy the episode, I would love it if you could follow and review the podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. We do share details for Kat and Sarah. So you you know, so if you want to go up off and listen to their podcast episodes, which are incredible, um, then we've got the link as also the link to their book. So until next time, here's Kat and Sarah. Well, I am so excited because we're talking sleep, but we're talking sleep from the experts. Okay, so this is going to be a monumentally helpful podcast episode. I'm joined by Kat and Sarah's Sleep Mums. Oh, goodness me. I'm in slight fandom here. So welcome, welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. Oh, I'm so excited. We're going to be talking and I'm going to sort of put it broadly and then I'm going to sort of drill down with some more questions. But I think this real interesting question around routine or not to routine. So you come home with this tiny little baby bundle and I'm I'm guessing sleep is probably one of the first massive challenges that we have around this and there seems to be these real very distinct camps of do you routine or do you not routine so I've got a, a bit of a broad question but what are your thoughts? So I think you know it, it comes up at different points um, and I don't think it is one simple answer there are times in baby's life that you are going to routine and times that you're not going to routine and there's also times that you'll find that you're routining without realizing that you've been routining so it's not something that you need to make a conscious decision about until you think okay this isn't working and now I need to make a change and now I'm going to make a conscious decision to do something to make this change but I genuinely I I actually hate the idea that people come home with a brand new baby and panic that they have to routine yeah, I think there's so much going on when you, you you first come home, as you say. And, you know, the last thing really you should be thinking about is getting yourself into a, a stringent routine if that's not for you. But for some parents, actually, that gives them some comfort. Do you think that this whole notion of routine or not to routine comes is driven by our need? You know, I I'm quite an ordered individual. I get safety from being a control enthusiast. So does routine, is it driven by us more 
or is it, does it tend to then be driven by the child? I, I think it's... I was going both. <laughs> Sorry, Kat. I think um, for some people who love a routine, like Kat, then I think it can be driven by the parent. But equally, for some people who really don't think they like a routine, just by meeting baby's needs, you are in a routine. So that that side of it, that more gentle routine side, I suppose, is dictated by baby. Yeah, I think there is an element of control. And that's why I say for some parents, they might find comfort in it. Because, you know, in the early days of parenthood, you feel a little bit lost at sea, cast away, what do I do? And so the idea of, okay, these things have to happen at this time can give you a little bit of comfort, can make you feel sort of more anchored into what you're doing or make you feel like you're doing a good job because you know to some extent that you're you're meeting needs. But yeah, of course, the, 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 the needs are the babies. So it, it's also them that is creating the routine. And I love the way that you talked about that routine as well, both of you, this idea that, you know, the routine is dictated by you meeting the child's needs. Whereas I think quite often, well, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of routine being and they'll go to bed at this time and they will, then we'll do this, then we'll do that. But actually just by meeting our baby's needs and our child's needs, we're actually creating a routine. Definitely. So I wonder if we need to change. I think the, the most, some of the most important parts of the routine are, we would say, are, are the bookends of the day, the start and the end, and then sort of how it how it gets created and within that. Obviously, is whether you're talking about a baby or a child is to do with feeds and sleep. But those those if you have those two points in the day where you can keep consistent, that's kind of the most important thing. Would you say then that that's probably the best starting point and then allowing that fluidity in the middle? I think there comes an age when it's the best starting point to have your start of the day and end of the day. But I don't think you can have that when you've got a newborn, new newborn. That does come with time. But yes, that's it is definitely the best way to then have hooks throughout your day to start from. I think initially when you first bring your baby home, you're hooks are your feeds because that is the most important thing far more important than anything is feeding your baby so if you've got your feeds in a sort of scheduled pattern then everything else is going to naturally come in around that um, and you don't need to think about anything else at that stage as feeding is the key thing I think a lot of parents, um, well, you said, you know, you, you think about sleep at the very beginning, like, oh my God, what's, what am I going to do? And I'm so tired. But as Sarah says, the, the best piece of advice that I think Sarah gives is, you know, focus on the feeds and that everything else will fall into place at the beginning. You know, that's the important thing. And then you can worry about all the other stuff and sleep later. That's such a different shift, isn't it, in the way that you're thinking? Because actually, if you're thinking about the feeding, that's a whole different ballgame than, oh, my goodness me, they're barely sleeping. It's a what does that do to our behavior and then our expectations and then how things naturally progress that shift? I think it massively alleviates stress and anxiety in parents when they switch that focus, because sleep isn't something that you can 
achieve without all the other boxes being ticked. So if you go in thinking, okay, I've got to get my baby to sleep, of course your anxiety levels are rising. You know, you you panic and that's it just escalates very, very quickly. Whereas if you give a new parent the focus of feeding, they can achieve that, whether that's, you know, whatever form of feeding they decide to choose or is dictated by the baby's needs, they can achieve that feed. And that is key to then calming everybody down, relieving the anxiety and giving them a focus that they can achieve. I think I've just had a bit of a aha moment. I'm a big Oprah fan, so that's hence the old aha. <laughs> okay. So I'm also guessing that different children, our own children, so siblings, will have different needs around food and so actually by focusing our attention on feeding we don't get caught in the trap that oh my eldest used to sleep straight through the night what am I doing wrong with my middle one or my youngest is that right Mm -hmm. definitely a hundred percent a hundred percent and every you're totally right you know every baby's needs are different and how they accept those needs being met But the feeding is the one thing that everybody can do and has to do in some form. And it just, you know, it takes that comparison away because you're ticking that box. And I'm guessing we understand that our children, you know, I've got, you know, my daughter used to love having fish pie when she was little. My child did. My son did not. But actually, when you think that that sort of taste buds, we're quite okay with that, aren't we? The difference is... That's a much better framing of things than this. This child doesn't sleep in that one. When the focus shifts to this idea about feeding. There's also a lot of more conversation around sleep needs, I think, these days as well. Um, generally, we're talking about, you know, older older children too. But the, the sleep needs of a baby can vary as much as the, the, the taste buds, if you like, of the fish pie and the not the fish pie. Yeah, so talk, because obviously what quite often happens is we come home, we've got, we've bought books, we've reading books, we're looking at how much sleep we think our child needs or or what, how much sleep the book is telling us to do. How much variability is there around children's sleep patterns that we need to sort of be accepting really early on rather than getting caught in that comparison of maybe our antenatal friends whose babies are sleeping through the night? There's huge differences there. um, You know, I think I actually did a post recently on social media about this and um, around about the sort of... Not social media. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Around about the six to nine month mark, babies, the difference in sleep over 24 hours can be between four and six hours. So when when you actually say that to a parent, you know, suddenly... It's like a light bulb moment for them. It's like, okay, so Jimmy down the road that's sleeping 12 hours a night, that's because that's what that particular Jimmy needs. But Jimmy up the road, who's only sleeping 10 hours a night, it's not wrong. It's not too little. It's just the sleep needs are so drastically different. And they can also be split so drastically different across the day. So between your naps and your overnight, as long as you're still, or your baby's still meeting those needs, it can show in such a variety of ways and they can be met in very, very different ways throughout the day and night. Are those differences in needs met, are those because of 
temperament? What what are the things that that create these big variations in sleep needs? So just like you and I, you know, I mean, compare Kat and I, for example, our sleep needs are worlds apart. (laughs) I need a good eight hours. (laughs) And I'm happy with a broken four. So (laughs) we're very extreme. (laughs) Um, But, you know, babies also, babies and children have those needs. I mean, between our six children alone, the sleep needs for those six children are just drastically varied. And that actually would be really interesting to do a bit of a graph or something because our children over, you know, we've got four children who overlap in ages quite um, closely. So out of the six to actually compare those sleep needs. Now they're all being met. Every, every single child is getting what they need, but it varies drastically. I think there's a thing around needs as well in that some of them can be a bit interchangeable. You know, when, when we're very tired, we, we can help you, you know, it's about fuel, you know, so the main, main needs that you need to meet for a baby or for a child and for an adult, really, although they do get more complex, essentially. But, you know, you're talking about sleep needs, their, their feeds or solids needs and their, um, stimulation. And that's active play and rest as well. Um, and so th- those needs can, there can be a bit of interaction between them. Obviously, you know, sometimes having food is stimulation is as well. Uh, it can fulfill a different part of it. Sometimes when you're very tired, you need something to eat. Sometimes if you're very hungry, if you have a nap, it will help. You know, the, the, it isn't quite as always so clear cut. And we often talk when parents are trying to drop naps or um or if they're trying to keep their kids awake or something they can you can use food to help them through that and that is because some of those needs can be interchangeable you just obviously don't want to change them up too much like um i know sarah knows i've said this before but my eldest uh, whenever she's going to bed she always says she's hungry and i'm like you're not hungry you're tired it's your your brain is telling you that you need something and it's sleep i promise you you've had a, you've had dinner you've had supper you're definitely not hungry and um it is the, but she confuses those needs in her head i think and we do as well we know if you've maybe had a big night out <laughs> doesn't happen so often now or if you are very tired when you've got a small baby that you will reach for food or maybe a coffee or something to try and fulfill that need of sleep that you're lacking. That That's so interesting about that confusion between that need and, and the fact that, as you say, that it can be very individual, whether that stimulation, whether that food then ends up becoming a stimulation and actually keeps you awake or whether it's then used as that sleeping. How do we begin to tune into what our child needs so that we're responding to that rather than what we think we should be doing. In some ways, that's where a routine comes in handy because it is kind of like having a crib sheet to those needs. And so if you start off with a routine, you then start to let, you know, if we're talking about babies, obviously it it depends on the age of your child. But if, if if you have a baby and you start with a routine, then you can start to learn their cues and what they're trying to tell you because you have that crib sheet and then you can kind of learn more and go off book if you like and go go a bit kind of renegade and chuck away the routine because you are more in tune with what they need because you've been able to hone that by by fulfilling their needs through a routine 
it's really important to have those off-piece days because that builds everybody's confidence as well. And because baby is so in tune with the routine, they will still meet their needs. They might be a little bit varied. You know, they might not nap as long as you're out and about and things like that. But actually having off-piece days means that everybody's confidence rises. It means that you can go on holiday, you can go away, you can do all these things, be confident, not be worried. Everyone's needs are being met and everything goes smoothly. So a routine is great, but falling out of the routine is also a really big positive. Do you see a lot of parents becoming anxious around routine and then not going off-piste because of that? Does that is that is there an element of actually do you know what I just don't want to disturb this? Um I think it's quite interesting. Just kind of going back to what you said in the uh, about we were talking about control right at the start I think if you go from you know some people have very controlled jobs before they become parents or, or maybe they don't maybe they are the opposite and then they become a parent and they sort of feel like they need to rein that back in and yeah I would hold my hands up I I, I floundered or I felt like I floundered so much at the start once I did get a routine and and it worked for us as a family I was absolutely terrified of of letting that go and it has taken probably well it, I know it has taken three children and a lot of counseling from Sarah to to give me the confidence to be more flexible within those things and yeah I think you can massively get in a rut because quite often when you do go off routine when you have been following one it will go tits up and that then gives you the fear. And actually what I didn't realize at the time was that that was okay and that I would be able to pull it back. But I suppose, and Sarah and I have talked about this a lot, if you are the main caregiver, it is often you that takes the brunt of that. And so if you've got something that's working for you, you can be very reluctant to give that up. That, that's just my own experience. <laughs> Sarah, did you want to add anything to that? No, I think, um, you know, it is something that we see a lot of. And, you know, I probably struggle to remember what I was like, actually, when I first became a mum. I, I know that routine was important to me. I feel like my memories of it, I was quite flexible within my routine. But if you ask somebody else, I probably wasn't. Um, you know, I would have had my panics as well. But it is, it's something that I talk to parents about a lot. And when I'm working with people, um, I generally work with them for a month. And within that month, I make people do things. So I make them do an out and about nap. I make them go out for dinner. I try and make them go away for a night. So, you know, you, you have to really um, support that anxiety, recognise it and help them through it. But it's, it's definitely very common. And it is going back to what Kat was saying. It's being able to recognise the characteristics of you as an individual. And if you know, it may well be that you've, you've come from a, a job where you're used to routine, you're used to knowing what to expect. And maybe you quite like the free flow that happens initially, but also it can be that you're then actively seeking that because it's so much, so inherently part of who you are. So I think that that's it, being able to kind of recognise that. And I know that you both advocate a lot for this notion that no routines look the same in different families. How do we avoid being sucked into comparison? 
God, I wish we had the answer. <laughs> I think, you know, that we talk, we talk about that a lot, don't we? Like, I, we'd love it if parents could just support each other, if they stopped shaming, if they stopped comparing. That would be the dream. But, yeah, any ideas from anyone else we'd take and run well, with? Well, I just... I think that that mantra of not my monkeys, not not my circus, and you know, to to focus on yourself and and what you're doing, and what we believe really is that that comes down to having confidence in what you're doing, because then if if you're confident in what you're doing, you're able to go, okay, that's for them, and this is for me, and so massively what we focus on in the podcast and in, in our book is is hoping that we can give parents the information that will allow them to have confidence. That's why the, the sort of the tone of the podcast and the tone of the book was so important to us because we didn't want it to be prescriptive. We didn't want it to be talking down to parents like they're no daft. Um, you know, that it's something that they can then take that information with and then run with it. And that will then give the confidence that will hopefully allow them to not feel like they need to compare as much. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Confidence is crucial. And confidence for some parents, I'm guessing, comes from information. And that's where the book is so key because it gives that information. Yeah, and also... It comes from doing things and it and it working, I guess, too. Um, some of those things are, are things you have to work out yourself. You know, if you're talking about settling techniques that you're going to use on your baby, they're going to be different for different children. Uh, and finding, like, those, you know, you said you had an aha moment earlier on. Those aha moments in parenting are are also what give you the confidence and the strength, you know, and, and those, that, those, you know, your relationship with your baby or your child is forged in those aha moments and it, often in the middle of the night, you know, that first time that you manage to settle them doing something, you know, that is like, you know, if you're trying to um, settle them in their, in their, their own sleeping space where we, we talk about using the sleep, sleep mum sugar a lot. And that was an aha moment for me when, when I started sugaring my baby's bottom and she went to sleep and I wasn't feeding her 20 times a night <laughs> and getting no rest. And, and, uh, and there've been many aha moments following that, you know, not related to sleep. We were talking about, we've been talking about anxiety and stuff as well that, you know, when, when my, she was probably about three, starting having a really big tantrum in the car on the way to something and suddenly going, I, I, and I maybe had been a little bit short with her and then actually realizing she's, she's nervous about what we're going to do. You know, that's where this has come from. And having those moments where you understand your child are incredible, but they should, they are also the things that give you confidence. Sorry, I, f I feel like I went on a, off on a very big sort of monologue there. <laughs> No, I love that. <laughs> Tell me, what is sugling? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. This was like news to, well, news to me. I think it was news to Kat as well, though, that this is such a Scottish thing. And now so many people ask about it. I know that you don't, you're not on camera yet, but imagine this is your baby. And you literally just put a nice firm hand on their bottom and give them a good old sugar. So if you imagine when they're in the pram or you're rocking them, they're getting that movement. And so it's just recreating that movement when they're in their cot or in their safe sleep environment to give them that comfort. And you just shh, 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 and sugar them off to sleep. 
I love that. We're going to have to share this video. We'll, we will share that clip of Sarah doing it. But of course, that makes sense, isn't it? Because when our, our children get put in a car, when they go into a pram or a pushchair, that movement is so helpful in terms of putting them to sleep. And yet when they're in their beds or their cots, yeah. they don't, there's no motion. They're, they've got the motion in the womb. They've got, you know, you you never pick up a baby and don't bounce or move or something. So naturally, they are so used to that, um, and it's just supporting them when they are in their cot, so that they feel safe and they feel something familiar. Oh, I love that. Can I ask? So we've ha we've talked about babies. I want to start talking about older children and one of the common things that I get asked about and some of the common challenges that parents have is that how is that settling so we've now got a child that's sleeping in a bed they're mobile they can get up they can come out and tell us that they're hungry they're thirsty that what are the in your experience can you all the things <laughs> can you give us some tips about how do we what is in your experience some of the best ways to settle a child so that we can help them as best as possible for them to go to sleep in their own bed. So the really key things are support. You need to support your older children. If they feel like they're just being left to go to sleep by themselves or left when they wake up, then the anxiety builds and it becomes pretty messy. So our top tips would be using visual aids. It's really important that they understand and they know what the expectation is. So we both love photos. I love a Polaroid photo, so take actual pictures. Like a visual timeline. Your, yeah, so take actual pictures of your child doing the things that you would like them to do, including a photo of them sleeping in bed, and have that somewhere that they can see it and you can refer back to it. So you can talk about it during the day, not necessarily at bedtime, because as we know, that can add to the anxiety. But if it's something that they can go and check during the day and that they, see, they get that comfort from seeing it, and then as they do the activity, so you might pick five that it could be have a bath, clean your teeth, read a book, put your pyjamas on, hop into bed. And they can see themselves doing those things. And so they can then take those things off the wall as and when they've done them. And the very last thing that happens is once they're asleep, you remove the one of them sleeping and just pop it next to their bed so that when they wake up in the morning, they see that they are and they know that they've achieved that. So they instantly get that excitement because they've done what they knew they were meant to do. But actually explaining that and trying to talk to children without any visuals can be really difficult for them to take on board what we're actually asking them and what our expectation is. So just using lots of visual aids, lots and lots of support, lots of positive reinforcement, I can't tell you how many people come to me and say, I just lose the rag when they don't sleep. And that's understandable. But try and cling on to even the smallest positive thing and use that as your focus when you're talking about the negatives. So really encourage them and really focus on that one little positive and just drop in. Maybe tonight you could try this instead. So the actual thing that is the biggest issue for you you talk about it in the smallest possible way. I use a bit of a hack for, for Sarah's visual timelines because I'm not quite as crafty as her. And um, my, I, I use my fingers so, you know, they, we fold them down when we've done the thing. So it might be, you know, having a bath. And then the last thing will be me saying, you know, kissing them and giving them a cuddle good night. And that's also quite a nice way of, of them being able to physically do something as we move through 
through the process. But also as, and that's obviously for older children, but also as Sarah says, that's, that's what we can do for them to help them within kind of going to bed and going to sleep. But it's also so important to find the things you need to do for you to make that process a, a smooth one. As Sarah's saying, often we feel we, we lose our rag when, you know, we, we want them to be asleep or we're tired or we've not had dinner. And, and, and Sarah and I talk about this a lot know what you need to be able to get through that process as calmly as possible because that can be key particularly with older children I think that's true probably right up until they're they're teens I guess because you, that whole that whole thing is that whole energy around bedtime is so important because if it if it escalates that can completely derail it yeah, Definitely. and thinking about it from both both the perspectives, I love the idea that the photographs of your of the children doing it themselves. But I also love the hack that you've got, Cat, with your fingers. It just shows that we don't have to; we can just adapt and we can modify what works for us as as a parent. And um, but I also love how crucial it is about making sure that we understand what we need in order to make that happen. So, can I just ask as and a question around how do we make sure that we get sleep? We've talked a lot about our children and our babies. What what are your top tips around our sleep from those early days right and right the way through? How do we make sure that we get enough sleep ourselves? A, a lot of the things we recommend for for babies and children are exactly the same as what what we need as adults. We need you know consistent times to go to bed and to get up. In, in the day, we need a bed, a healthy bedtime routine, ideally that doesn't involve screens and uh, and social media for for the last wee while. Um, you need to think about your sleep environment. You know, is it good temperature, or, or do you like your pillow? <laughs> like, uh, you know, is is it quiet? Is it dark? All of the things you would you would be thinking about in terms of a baby or or a child's room, and um, and and I think that. That, that's kind of about having good uh, habits around sleep, but also prioritizing it for yourself. You know, that uh, we can feel quite kind of martyrish, I think, as parents. Um, of course, there's going to be a lot of sleep. You're going to lose sleep um, when you become a parent. But that also doesn't mean that you can't say, I need this and to, to ask for help to try and get it. I'm a terrible napper. Everyone was like, you know, says the sleep when the baby sleeps. It's just not ridiculous. Realistic. In fact, it's ridiculous. Um, you, you know, you baby sleep for sort of eighteen hours a day, and also have a tendency to like fall asleep in Tesco or something, which you cannot do. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, but but finding the right the right environment and the right space for you to be able to sleep or to get some rest is so important, and to to make sure that that people know the people around you. Hopefully, you have support. The people around you can help you get that it's key to ask for help and even if you're not sleeping it's taking the time to rest um but also being a little bit selfish as well i think you know it's not always sleep that's needed to make you sleep so if for you you need to ask for help so that you can tidy the house so that you can then relax and sleep that's okay too i think people do have a tendency when they're offering to help when you've got babies and children if it's sleep related then the offer is I'll take the baby while you go and sleep and actually that can just add to the anxiety so actually just thinking about what you really need in order to get that sleep overnight or get that rest or downtime and just yeah be a bit selfish about that yeah and definitely asking for help because sometimes you you would 
as you said, Sarah, if, if things were tidied, you might then be able to fall asleep because that's less of the to-do list in your head that then means that you can yeah. then rest. So it is so crucial about asking for help. Why do you think, okay, I, this is completely off-piece question, um, but I'm going to ask anyway. I personally believe that men have a whole different filter when it comes to sleep in terms of hearing babies crying and then waking up. Is there a difference? I think that's a really hard one. I see so many clients, I see so many people and we talk about sleep and I honestly think it's probably 50-50 as to who wakes up the most. I, I don't think it's as clean cut as men sleep more um, or can sleep better. Like I, I, I clients that I've got just now, the dad is the one that gets up every night and he wakes up and mum will sleep through anything. I mean, literally anything she will sleep through it. And dad is the super sensitive one and jumps up and deals with it. So uh, I guess I see a lot more people on the average and, it, you know, I'd say, yeah, I, I, I see a difference. I, I, I wonder if it's a little bit about who acts on what is happening. So I am very aware that my husband probably does wake up to all the shouts and cries, but the two differences are he chooses to slightly pretend that he's still asleep <laughs> and the, the child usually says, asks for mama. So he kind of thinks it's not for him. But in a different family, that setup might be asking for, for, for dada or whatever. So our daddy. Um, uh, but that, that's how it is. Um, is that more common if you're a main care? I don't know. Sarah, Sarah sees more than people, I guess. But it probably is. I, th I think it drastically varies as well. Because I think for some children, you know, if dad is the one who's out at work all day and mum is the main carer, then they get so excited when dad comes home that they do actually ask for them overnight. So I don't think there's a straight answer to this one. It would be an interesting study, though. Well, there is a study that I think says that, that women lose m more sleep in the first year of parenthood than men. But, I mean, you know, you've got to tie in things like feeding and stuff yeah. like that if it's an average, so... Yeah, and as you say, Kat, it's the causes of that. Is it that they are just as sensitive to the hearing, but that there's a different in terms of action? So, Sarah, thank you, given that you have seen so many. You've got a much larger sample. And apologies to all the... Trying to myth some bust, uh, bust some myths. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> now, you have written a book. Tell me about the book, because I think that's so helpful for parents who are really struggling with... with um, what was your kind of driver? What did you want to make sure that you got across in that book for parents and why they should be reaching out and buying it right now? It, it was really, really important to us that, as, as I think I said, that we wrote a book that was honest, that had real solutions for, for parents and that wasn't kind of talking down either. Um, in all of our chapters, we kind of have, um, it's not quite homework. It's just what, what you can do next. And we have, you know, what you need, what you can do for survival and what you can do if you want to, to change things and, and, people really, really respond really well to that. They want options. They want to have the information, but they also want options. And we also wanted it 
really to to be very straightforward for people to kind of dip in and out of in in those sleep deprived months of of early parenthood. It's called Sleep Better Baby. It's available in all good bookstores <laughs> online and in person. And um, yeah, we're, we're, we're really proud of it. It's, um was an absolute labor of love. We, we got the book deal the month when my third child was born. So we had a very intensive uh, year. He had a very intensive first year of life as well because he spent a lot of time with Sarah and me writing. But thankfully, he was a very forgiving writing companion. But it did also mean that I was living it at the time that we were writing, which I think really helped too. <laughs> yeah. And the reviews are very much that it has been life saving and so kind of instrumental in getting parents through and what's and what is so great is this idea that you can use it for in that moment but you can also then use the book if you want to be looking at making some changes forward planning it because quite often with books we can end up reading them and then feeling that we're doing something wrong rather than I need some help right now in fixing this particular issue and then I might then also look and I think that's what's so incredible about this book it's a really practical whatever you might need and tailored to this idea that it's very individual within families. It's not all the same. And we will be sharing the, the links to where you can buy the book so that you can kind of get that piece of that security and that safety and that really excellent, incredible advice. Kat and Sarah, it has been an absolute pleasure. I think we could probably talk more and maybe we should have you back on talking about something else some other things as well but can you tell the listeners where we will be sharing links but just in your own voices where is the best place for other parents who are listening to this podcast to connect with you to hear your podcast to connect with you socially and, and all across all the ways that they can connect um, but I think the the best place to find us, particularly if you're listening to this podcast, is our podcast, The Sleep Mums. Uh, you, you just find it by searching The Sleep Mums. There's over 70 episodes on there, not just about baby sleep. We have a fantastic series, which we're also going to have uh, Dr. Mary Han on, called The A to Z's, um, Sleep Mums A to Z's, where, where we cover lots of different subjects uh, about parenthood. And yeah, the, the, the podcast is, I think, our spiritual home. That's where everything came from. And uh, the book, uh, Sleep Better Baby, as you said, you can buy it online or in bookstores. We are on social channels at The Sleep Mums. We are on Instagram, Facebook. Um, we dabble in TikTok and YouTube. And um, I think once I tried to set up a Pinterest board, I mean, this is, you know, I'm feeling kind of like having spoken to you really that we, we should be kind of shredding away some of that. <laughs> um, but, but we are in all of those places and we'd love you to come and find us. Um, we keep it judgment free and um, hopefully funny and useful as much as possible. And uh, we also have a website, thesleepmums.co.uk. Well, thank you, Kat. Thank you, Sarah, so much. And here's to a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm.